Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Comedian Stephen Colbert talks about truthiness. Donald Trump talks about fake news. But what is truth and how do we discern what it is in the midst of more misinformation and disinformation than perhaps we've ever seen? Dr. Mary Magata Ward, Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies, has written a paper published in the Journal of Speculative Philosophy about truth and rational belief and their ties to communal effort. We'll explain after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU professor Amy Harris was honored this year by the Greater Nashville Technology Council with its Diversity and Inclusion Advocate of the Year Award. Harris, an associate professor of business intelligence and analytics, was the recipient of one of two new awards presented this year, the other being Technology Educator of the Year. The Mid-State Advocacy Organization announced the winners of the 12th Annual NTC Awards to hundreds of online attendees last month during a live broadcast from Stage Post Studios in Nashville. Nominees were judged on community impact and advocacy for underrepresented minorities in tech, such as women or ethnic and racial minorities. And MTSU student Denise Ortega, a biology and ecology major, has earned the prestigious Barry M. Goldwater Scholarship. The 22-year-old senior from Madison, Tennessee, is one of more than 400 U.S. college students chosen from thousands of applicants to receive the distinction. Ortega, who is planning to graduate in December, said she'll use the Goldwater Award of up to $7,500 to pay tuition, possible travel, and research supplies. Ortega is a bilingual, first-generation student originally from Ecuador who has completed two National Science Foundation research experiences for undergraduates at the University of New Mexico and in Costa Rica. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Hey, Mary. Welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Jenna. You start the paper by talking about James and Deborah Fallows and their trip to small and medium-sized cities across the U.S. What did they do and what did they find out? I found the James and Deborah Fallows book. I think they had an excerpt from it in the Atlantic. And I was feeling very blue and depressed about the state of the country. And so I went and got this book out of our library. And I became really fascinated in what they were doing. And what they did was they went to, I think it was 35 cities in a five-year period, flying a private plane, like a single-engine prop plane. And they wanted to figure out what made a town work. And what I found fascinating was not only their list of all the things that all these successful cities and towns had in common, I also found it really fascinating where they said the focus is on local issues and that the more we heard about national politics, the worse shape the town was likely to be in. And also part of this was I was invited at a, to a symposium on truth. And I had long wanted to work on Charles Sanders' person's conception of truth. And I thought, there's a parallel here that I want to explore. Uh, you make this particular comparison between a couple of cities the fellows visited Dodge City, Kansas, which is mostly conservative, and Burlington, Vermont, which is mostly progressive. Talk about what 
those two cities have in common? Well, for me, what was fascinating about this, again, and I chose them because they're roughly the same size, but that one is so blue, especially given Bernie Sanders living in Burlington, Vermont, um, and one is so red. Um, But the similarities really outweighed their differences. And the two big ones that really caught my eyes were first, this commitment to education. Um, And secondly, uh, this incredible uh, welcoming uh, stance towards immigrants, not all of which was motivated by economic factors, but economic factors were uh, certainly played a role. And one of the things I didn't realize, so as I kind of mentioned in the paper, in Burlington, Vermont, Refugees and immigrants are prized by factories because um, they shun drug use. So the opioid um, epidemic that has decimated Vermont has not hit refugees and immigrants and hence why they help industry in Vermont. And I also did know this about Dodge City, Kansas because my beloved great Aunt Virginia went to high school there is that without immigrants to work in what are now called packing houses, you wouldn't have a town. Because it's not pretty work, especially if you have to eviscerate chickens, slaughter cows. It's uh, it's difficult. And you, if you have to feed your family, you do what you have to do, but it's not pretty. Oh, it's not pretty. And what I also thought was really interesting was uh, the interviews they did with the packing house managers. And apparently uh, jobs in what used to be called slaughterhouses do have benefits, they pay pretty well. But again, he's gonna say, not very many native born Americans are gonna do these jobs. They're hard work. There was one phrase that captured my imagination uh, and it was equality of intellectual authority. And the way the principal and the assistant principal of Dodge City High School described their operating principle, kids first, then teachers, then administration. So often it's the other way around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was taken by that too. I particularly also liked how Deborah Fallow said, however, the kids weren't sorting each other. It's not on the basis of race or ethnicity. I thought that was really interesting. But of course, and I don't want to pick on our teachers, uh, particularly in primary and secondary education, because I think this is another problem that so much money and funding is tied up with scores on standardized tests. But I'd love that too, that we're going to focus on what the kids need, what the the kids are primary. Sometimes when the administration comes first, the teachers feel that their jobs could be on the line if they don't adhere to administration edicts and the kids ultimately suffer. So it's interesting to try the reverse procedure for a change and see if that results in better education. Oh, I completely agree with you. And it's like the old canard about the employees at, say, a restaurant or a factory who know what's best and someone who has had no experience at these lower levels comes in and tries to institute things that don't work because they don't have the experience, right? They're not actually working with real children and the children of that particular town of Dodge City and what they need. We'll get to what all this has to do with truth or the perception of truth in just a minute, but first we'll take a break. This is MTSU on the record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. 
We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We are with Dr. Mary Magata Ward, who is the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies, talking about a paper she has written that was published in the Journal of Speculative Philosophy. The title of the paper is Neither Yours Nor Mine But Ours on the Communal Nature of Truth and Rational Belief. Now, after what we've just mentioned about what the cities the fellows visited have in common, they care about local issues, they get together on local matters, some of which are political, some of which are not political, some of which are just communal, but they all have relevance to the overall health of whatever community they're living in. What does this have to do with the truth or the perception of truth? Well, my hope, Jenna, was that I could draw some illuminating parallels between sort of uh, local success and how it relates to uh, the kind of health of a nation between an individual's attempt to attain rational beliefs and the ultimate achievement of truth. One of the things I also thought was fascinating about the two towns was that they uh, were happy to pay taxes that they then put into local projects because they were invested in their local community in both Dutch City and in Burlington, Vermont. Apparently without bitching about having to pay those taxes because they wanted to put their money where their mouth was. And also perhaps to be able to see the fruits of that. One of the three virtues of truth you mentioned in the paper is inquiry over time. In other words, if I understand you correctly, it's not just the communal experience of all of us together trying to discern what is true, but the need to pursue critical thinking about it and not jump to conclusions. I mean, your initial experience might ultimately, with hindsight and reflection and further experience over a period of time, might not be as accurate as you thought it would have been, right? Oh, I think that that's true. And I think that as we get older, uh, we look back and we think, why did I ever believe that? Because of course, we all have our own particular histories. We all have our own idiosyncrasies, most of which we're blind to until we sort of can't transact successfully with our environment or until we meet someone who believes differently than we do, uh, which I think is, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, that's why public education is the backbone of a functioning democracy. Because what does public education do? It um, encourages you to meet people who are unlike you and who have different assumptions and who force you to reflect upon your beliefs. Because of course, the beliefs I hold, I hold them because I believe they're true, but I don't doubt them until in some ways I'm frustrated in my pursuit. I'm gonna make a grand generalization here, which I think is warranted. Isolation breeds evil. Um, the very first thing I'm gonna do if I wanna abuse somebody is I isolate them. And then I make this treatment seem normal because they are not 
in contact with people who are treated differently. Secondly, and I think this is really a hope, we're not disembodied minds here. I can hold beliefs, but I also have a body. If I believe very strongly that say Drano is good to drink, I'm gonna get sick. And so it's not simply that we're social creatures, we're also embodied creatures. The world is gonna bite back if I hold false beliefs. But of course, what I particularly like about what Purse has to say about this is that truth is the account we get when all perspectives have been heard from, when all experiments have been undertaken, when all assumptions have been brought to light, when all questions have been addressed. This is an ideal, but it is something that we get closer to. It also means sadly, but also maybe not so sadly, is that I as a lone individual can never be sure of the truth of my beliefs. On the good side, what that instills in us is humility and fallibilism. The older I get, Jenna, I think sort of the big enemy to human flourishing, aside from isolation, is dogmatism, which often go hand in hand. Testing one's beliefs against communal experience is part of the search for truth. We use the common expression, bouncing an idea off of somebody. Maybe we ought to bounce a little bit more often. We're in an era that seems to be, or at least has been described as one of tribalism, of retrenchment into communities of like-minded people. And it's nice to have a community, a support system of friends and family, but not if it becomes a gated community of the mind with the guard at the guard shack. And that, I think, is what you're getting at. Is, am, am I on the right track? Oh, absolutely. And one of the worries about our dependence, say, upon the internet, is that you can find communities of like-minded people. On the other hand, you can also, if you are isolated, find out things that you would never have been able to do if you were dependent solely upon your particular parochial local community. I think the Black Lives Matter movement has a lot to do with the fact that people were stuck at home. And these images were things that you can't ignore. And so that that was kind of a spur to alleviating or trying to alleviate a real problem in this country. But again, I'm sort of with Aristotle about this. Human life is full of risk. And a big risk, of course, is who you trust. If for your own comfort or fear, you only associate with people who believe the way you do, what you're doing is you're stunting your own growth. We have bodies. Uh, uh, this is tragic. But all those folks who thought that, the, that COVID was a hoax got sick or even died. Absolutely. We'll take another break here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. 
UIH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. We are talking about the search for truth and the connection between communal effort and truth and rational belief with Dr. Mary Magata Ward, Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies. In doing my bachelor's degree political science courses through one of my professors, I became a fan of Hannah Arendt, a political theorist. You write about fear, anger, blame, and disgust being factors that impede the realization of genuine community. One of the things Hannah Arendt wrote is, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi, or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, in other words, the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, in other words, the standards of thought, no longer exists. How does that strike you? Um, I think that's very powerful. I also think, too, that when we get to a point where we have sort of collapsed belief, and a belief by its nature. If I claim to believe something, I ought to be able to offer you reasons for why I believe it. And we've collapsed belief into the notion of personal preference. Personal preference, right? They can be explained, but they don't need to be justified. And when we get to a point where people just say, oh, I just feel that way, or I just like that, or that's just what I think, we've lost it. It's okay if you're talking about whether or not you want to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt, but uh, it's not okay when it comes to larger issues. Oh, that's absolutely right, Jenna, where if uh, the basis for why I'm voting for somebody is, eh, like them, you're kind of abdicating your responsibility as a citizen. And I bring that up partly because you did talk about dogmatism, and her opinion seems to be that the dogmatist is not as much of a threat as the person who has just abandoned all perception of what is true, whether it's attached to a dogma or not. Although, I think we have to be careful here. Both what's valuable, but also why it ultimately fails, what he calls the method of authority. And part of this is that no institution can legislate every single belief. And so even with a limited amount of freedom, sometimes people are going to say, huh, what's the basis for this authority? I was just talking to my advanced class about this the other day, where there's a real worry about tribalism or about people just sort of uh, deciding what to believe because it conforms to their prejudices or their preconceptions. But let's face it, Jenna, I am not, no one, is going to a heart surgeon who has not gone to medical school. No one is getting into a plane with someone who doesn't, who hasn't learned how to fly. So I think if we keep coming back to sometimes our worries about this are when we are talking about uh, things at the national level or, or abstractions. But in this sort of embodied world uh, in which we transact with our environments every day, the world bites back. And even the most delusional of us can't maintain their delusions before the world hits them in the face. Václav Havel, the former president of Czechoslovakia, talked about something called small-scale work. And what he meant was, even if you live 
under an oppressive regime that controls where you can go or punishes you, seeks retribution against you for what you express, beats you, kills you. If you do the small scale work by insisting in your own head that you are surrounded by BS and you can still control what your eyes see, what your ears hear, what your brain tells you as you process information and attempt to discern what is true and what is not true, you are still doing the small scale work of democracy, even though you are not being out and about and loud and proud. Oh, I love that. I think that makes sense. But I also want to say that what is absolutely crucial is that you have someone else to bounce your ideas off of, uh, to check your perceptions, because we tend to perceive what we expect to perceive. I find all those experiments where, uh, say, somebody in a gorilla suit goes into a major league baseball game and nobody notices them because they're not paying attention. I find those fascinating, but you also need someone else to check your perceptions and your emotions and your decisions against. I think that's absolutely crucial. Peirce has a wonderful line where he says the individual man, apart from what he and his fellows are to be, is merely a negation. If we know this, if um, given a certain pretty large window, if a child is not talked to by an adult human being, they eventually lose the ability right, to have a language. We're all familiar with the terrible case in uh, the the hospital that dealt with wartime orphans in France, I think in the 1800s, where the orphans were fed and cleaned. None of the nurses had any time to interact with the babies, and the babies died. We need language. We need that tactile sensation. They're both essential to promoting growth as people. Why do so many of us tend to ignore what goes on at the local level these days, local churches, schools, city councils? You you can't get people to pay attention to what politicians call the down ballot races. Do we think we're boring? I will say one of uh, the benefits of the last four years, and I have to admit this, I just never thought that my vote in local races would count. So I was one of those terrible people who only voted every four years. Until recently. And I started thinking, I can do something about this. We can do something about the way our local government is run. We can do something in terms of neighborhoods. My real worry, and I think this is a worry that you share being a huge fan of Hannah Arendt. The real worry I have is people starting to feel like they're utterly powerless because everybody wants a sense of agency. Then you feel powerless to me, whenever you feel like I can't do anything about this, I can't change this, it's horrifying and paralyzing. I know a few supervisors who need to get that message because (laughs) employees who feel that they have agency and feel empowered are more productive in the long run, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. This is another insight from Plato. No education goes on. If I walk into a classroom Mm -hmm. and I assume that my students are lazy or dumb or corrupt, it can't happen. Because of course, this equality of authority, right? Of intellectual authority means we have to, now there are qualifications to this obviously, but we have to at least start out with a presumption that everyone has something to say or something to contribute. Now it might turn out that there are folks that don't, but that's only gonna be on a case by case basis. Using Plato as a jumping off point, if you're in the cave by yourself 
you don't have anybody to tell you whether that image on the wall is a, yeah. another human being or if it's just an image. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I also think one of the things that we sometimes forget is that the prisoner escapes and goes out into the light and doesn't want to go back down to the cave, but feels a real obligation. When he first gets down there, he stumbles around and the other folks don't believe him, at least initially. How do we combat the seemingly bifurcated assertions of truth in the media and among the public at large today? Is it going back to the basics of communal truth blooming where you're planted, as it were, to uh, spread a, a greater sense of nearby experience promoting truth, being able to get together and reaffirm each other and maybe rebut each other in a greater search for what's real? One of the things I very much like about Peirce's conception of truth is that I, as an individual, can attain rational belief. One of which, right, one hallmark of, a, of rationality is that it's consistent. And so if I'm faced with a contradiction, I can't help but attempt to resolve that. It's irritating to me. But notice too, that I, as a lone individual, can attain rational belief. But truth is something that is gonna be a communal long-term project. What I do think is, that we are social creatures, we need to talk to each other. And in so, so, right, whenever we converse with somebody, we need to treat them with respect. And if we don't understand where they're coming from, very first thing you say is, well, why do you think that? Because our obligation is, and this is, this is what it means to be a critical thinker, is that I can provide reasons for my assertions. And sometimes the only time that I'm forced to realize that I don't really have any reasons for this is in conversation with others. I cannot wait till we all get vaccinated and we can all just start talking to people at the grocery store or in restaurants or in bars. Or at the water cooler. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Once again, the paper is titled, Neither Yours Nor Mine, But Ours on the Communal Nature of Truth and Rational Belief. And it is published in the Journal of Speculative Philosophy. Volume 34, number four, if you're inclined to look it up on Google Scholar. Mary Magada Ward, thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the Record. Oh, thank you so much, Janet. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. 
MTSU's commencement ceremonies returned to Murphy Center this May, and though they were masked six feet apart and didn't get the customary handshake during the ten separate ceremonies over a three-day commencement weekend, the joy that nearly 2,500 members of the first class of 2021 and a few class of 2020 graduates felt at being back together in a quote, normal, unquote, situation was clear. Dr. Barbara Turnage, Associate Dean of MTSU's College of Behavioral and Health Sciences, was succinct in her praise for her graduates and their classmates. Wow, look at where you are. You made it. I have so much admiration and respect for each of you. No graduation classes since World War II have faced uncertainty you did. So circumstance was obviously different, but this was just as unsettling and unpredictable. We should all be appreciated that MTSU held together and is still thriving. It wasn't easy, but we all did it. Enjoy this miracle of life. Stay safe and enjoy your accomplishments. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.